Now, we took this trip to Israel. Uh, that was back in October. As a result of that trip, there were several things that were kind of uh, off-putting uh, that were um, um, okay. that um, that people noticed and was just uh, upsetting. And one of the, the the two major ones had to do with um, some of the emphases that the Roman Catholic Church is making in Jerusalem. The other has to do with Islam and what Islam is doing in Jerusalem. And so I came back and decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to address those two those two issues, Roman Catholicism and Islam. We're going to wrap up a Roman Catholicism tonight. I think we, I, I forget how many weeks we've been doing this on Roman Catholicism. Um, you know, 11 or 12, we did justification by faith. We did infallibility of the Pope. We did Mary in a couple of weeks. We looked at the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. We looked at, and now we're going to wrap up just these three weeks um, on Sola Scriptura. Um, and the next week, we'll take a look for four weeks at Islam and see if there might be some some uh, things we might need to know about that. Guys, um, I have for two weeks tried to put a, to, to define for you the Protestant view of the role that scriptures play. A single source of authority as opposed to two sources of authority. Um, I hope that much is fairly clear for you in terms of the differences in Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Uh, but tonight what I want to do is to answer two of the objections that are put forth by the Roman Catholic Church concerning our view, a Protestant view of Scripture. There are two major things, or I'm, uh, I should say, yeah, major, that's true. Um, there are several objections, but two major objections that the Roman Catholic Church levels at uh, Protestantism and her view of the scriptures, and we're going to try to look at both of those tonight. I do want to remind you of this, guys. I started this by saying, um, you have to you have to make a distinction in your minds between the captive and the captor. Um, none of us should be harsh on the captives. It's the captor that we've got to um, that we've got to dismantle. And and I I would say to you that the Council of Trent is is a part of the um the captor. And and I I I have absolutely no pang of conscience in attacking it. Uh the doctrine that that comes out of the Council of Trent. But we have to be somewhat careful about um attacking people. And so if you'll, if you'll check your New Testaments, the, I, I think you'll find this to be true. Jesus was always compassionate on the captive, the sheep that were scattered without a shepherd. And he was, he was always compassionate over crowds and masses. But when it came to the scribes and the Pharisees, he called them whitewashed sepulchers. I mean, he was, he, he didn't pull any punches when it had to do with the captor. Uh, but the captive was something that he, um, he, he demonstrated great compassion towards. And, and I think that's something that we have to maintain and emulate. Uh, if we want to, if we want to go after something, let's go after the captor, not the, the, the captive. Okay? So, having said that, um, I want to mention two objections that the Roman Catholic Church raises against the whole issue of sola scriptura. And here we go, guys. And I'm telling you, this first one is a doozy, and it might take our whole her whole evening, but um, because it's a very important issue. 
It's an, it's an issue that you have before you ever heard of sola scriptura, I promise you. Guys, Rome says that the Bible alone cannot be uh, our sole authority because the Bible does not tell us which books are to be included in, within its two covers. Um, the, the Rome says, and I'm quoting here, Rome says, before we come to the word of God in Genesis 1-1, we come to the word of the church at the table of contents. That pretty much summarizes it, guys. Do you, do you, do you get the gist of that? Before you can ever open this book and profit from Genesis 1-1, the church has got to precede that study of Genesis 1-1 and that which follows by telling you what books should be included. Sola Scriptura, which is the position of, of the Protestantism, cannot account for the canon. Now, guys, um, um, never fails. Um, the canon, yes. Um, the canon is, wor- is a word that simply means standard or measurement. It's a Latin word. Um, but... There is no inspired table of contents. Um, and the Roman Catholic Church is saying because there isn't, um, you have to depend upon the church to give you that. And thus we are brought into the whole issue of canonicity. Canonicity. I think that's spelled right. Um, now, guys, that is an issue. Um, Rome points to the issue of canonicity. Canonicity has to do with the books that are included in your Bible and the ones that are not. Rome points to canonicity as evidence for her position of the superiority of tradition. You remember, Rome has a two-source view of authority. Tradition and uh, scripture are made equal. Um, That's not really true because tradition is more important than the scriptures. but, But what they're saying is, it is the tradition of the church that is superior because the church... um. Uh, saw it as necessary to gather all of the books that were divinely inspired into one cover. But that was the church that did that. And therefore, the church is in the driver's seat. The, the, the church uh, is, is, um, is in a superior position because she gave you the final finished product that you now study. Scripture, according to Rome, owes its very nature, its very, not nature, it owes its very existence to the decisions that were made by the church. And therefore, the church's authority is in a very real sense prior to the authority of the scriptures. Do you see the issue? That is the, that is the objection that is leveled at the position known as sola scriptura. Do you get that much? I mean, because, guys, that's what canonicity addresses. It addresses 
what books are included. The Roman Catholic Church says, we're the ones that decided that as the church. Therefore, our authority is prior to and more real than the authority that derives from the scriptures. Okay? You ready? <laughs> because, guys, this is a somewhat of an intricate discussion. And um, you need to gird up the loins of your mind um, because it needs to it needs to be answered. And it is an answer, and I hope that this is I do it fairly clearly. Let me start like this. This is um, this is kind of an introduction to the whole issue, okay? But just understand this much: um, the first list that was offered by the Roman Catholic Church was offered by a pope by the name of Damascus um, in 382 A.D. Rome did not offer an official opinion an official opinion on the on the books of the, included in the bible until 1439 at the council of florence now guys this is important <laughs> and i'm just not trying to give you historical little tidbits it became that is um, the 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 bible as you well i was going to say the bible as you know it but that's not true the bible as approved by the roman catholic church which includes the apocrypha the Bible, as approved by the the, um, the Roman Catholic Church, became an article of faith at the Council of Trent in 1546. Now, here's the point. It took Rome almost 1,500 years to do what Rome claims is absolutely necessary to have a certain scriptural authority in the church. Do you, do, so the first 1,500 years did not have that. Um, and when Rome sees that as her essential role, but she didn't play that role for the first 1,500 years of the church, which means that the first 1,500 years of Christians were... Um, were ill-served, let's say, um, by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, that's just an introductory comment in terms of this thing of, uh, of canonicity. Now, you ready? Here goes. Gang, the period of book writing in the New Testament covered the years from approximately, now these are, these are round figures, approximately 50 to 95 A.D. That is, all of the books of the New Testament were written somewhere in those years. You know, the last book of the Bible is written by the Apostle John, the book of Revelation from the Isle of Patmos, you know. And that was somewhere in the 90 to 95 A.D. range. The um, the first written book of the Bible, guys, do you know what that is? Of the New Testament? It's probably Galatians or 1 Thessalonians, one of the two, somewhere around 50 to 51. The first synoptic gospel um, is written around 55. I mean, there's a lot of debate over when, and that was Mark, by the way. And we'll say Galatians was the first um, uh, first book written around 50 to 51. The, the first synoptic gospel was the was the gospel of Mark, and it was written uh, somewhere... I mean, it, it could, I favor a 55. Some, some say even as late as 60. Okay? Now, but here's the point. 
if Jesus died in 30 or 33, you know, there's all kinds of mistake, uh, 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 discussion over the, exactly the years and what, etc. But if Jesus, we're going to use round figures, if he died around 30 AD, there is a period in here of about 20, 18 to 20 years where there was no book even in circulation. Because the first book that was ever written wasn't written, and that's not, I mean, it may be as late as 55. So there's some 20 years in there where the church, there was no book at all written. Now, in those first 20 years of the church, she was expanding at, at enormous rates. You remember the 3,000 on one day and the 5,000 on the next day, et cetera, et cetera. Now, here's the question. What were those early converts being taught? And from where was the information taken that was being taught to the church in her first early years? And, and by the way, guys, even if if Mark wrote in if if Paul wrote Galatians in fifty, how long do you think it took that book to be, to gain circulation? So we we could talk about twenty to thirty years where the church was established, growing, prospering, catechizing, converting, all those things were going on, and there was no one book of the Bible, even in print, for that first 30 years. Um, all right, now, if you, if, you, if you got that, then what? how was a new convert catechized? How was he taught? How was he discipled? How was he trained? From, from whence cameth, cometh, cameth the information? Gang. The... The operating authoritative principle during that transitionary period, I don't know which term to give you, was apostolic tradition. Now, let me define that for you. Uh, Irenaeus came along about, I don't know, 145 or so, and called, called it the regula fide. That's the, that's the term I wanted to give you. Um, now, that's just a term that Irenaeus assigned to apostolic authority or apostolic um, teaching uh, or apostolic um, um, disciple. It's the summary. This term came to be known as the summary of all of the content of faith. This regular feeding means the rule of faith. And where did that come from? It came from the, from the summary of all that the apostles were teaching in this transitionary period between the church's beginning and the, the arrival of the first books on hand. All the writings that came afterward from, say, Paul or Mark or anybody were measured up against the regular fide. 
Because the regular fide was this, this succinct statement of, of content taught by the apostles that was accepted and, and, and used as to, to catechize converts in the new church. There is a sense, ladies and gentlemen, that the New Testament church was never without, and I put it in quotes, never without a Bible. She didn't have this, but what she did have in her possession is apostolic tradition. The apostles' teaching, etc., 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 summarized um, into this this regular fide, and everything was was measured, um, was scrutinized based on this which was available to the church. Let me show you an example, um, which I, I hope will help. Go with me, if you will, to First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter three. All right, guys, look at look at um, verse 16, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, colon. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, gang, do you know what you have there? You have a, 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 a section of or a, a portion of what was an early creed very Christological in nature. Manifested in the flesh. There you have the whole incarnation of Christ. Vindicated by the Spirit. That is, he was resurrected. Seen by angels. He was, he was, um, 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 ascended. Proclaimed among the nations. The gospel believed on the Lord. Taken up to glory. Ascension. What you have there is a portion of an early Christological creed that seems to form at least a, a, a minimum of, of truth and doctrine that had to be subscribed to by anyone who was converted and brought into that, to the church of Jesus Christ. This is an example, guys, of, of this apostolic tradition, this regular fide that was in existence in the church during this transitionary period. So at the heart of canonicity is the, is the issue of Apostolic authority. Do you understand that? I mean, these guys who, who, uh, when I say apostolic, we're talking about the apostles. We're talking about these guys who, who were trained by Jesus Christ and were the, the authority for the church in this period while books were being ultimately written and, and drawn together. The books that were later written by Paul and everybody else, were self-authenticating. Now understand, they were self-authenticating in the sense that they were measured against this. This thing that was already in existence, the books that were submitted to the church or were, were being circulating in the church, if they violated this, then they were they were rejected, gang. Um, the church had a founder. The founder is Jesus Christ. Uh, this is interesting. 
uh, if you still got your Bible, if you're still awake. Um, if you can find Ephesians real quick. The church has a founder. The founder is Jesus Christ. And the church has a foundation. Unfortunately, in the church, we sing error from time to time. And one of the songs that we sing is, The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. That, ladies and gentlemen, is error. Jesus Christ is not the foundation. He is the cornerstone. That's that's stated for you in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Verse 20, I believe. Yes. Um, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, guys, do you see what's being identified as the foundation of the church? It is the apostles and the prophets. At the center of canonicity is the, is the issue of apostolic authority, guys. Um, the teachings, the writings of the apostles and the prophets, that's summarized into, a, into an apostolic tradition known as, or having been identified and in, in, in entitled, the regular fide. Now, gang, the church did not establish the canon. The church did not establish the Bible. But the church recognized the Bible. Do you see the difference? It wasn't the church making an authoritative statement about what is and what isn't. It was the church recognizing that what was written by a Paul or a Peter or or whomever or John was in conformity to this which already existed. The church does not Create scripture. The church receives it. Um, it was Calvin that used the word recipimus. The church doesn't create it. The church just recognizes its conformity to this and receives it. And, and uh, adopts it as being something that's in concert with the regular fide. She submitted to its rule... And she, as she recognized it to be in concert with apostolic tradition. So if a letter was being circulated uh, uh, by the church, written by Paul, if that was consistent with what had already been established in the church, then the books were received. They weren't created by the church. I want to read you a quote from Roger Nicole, who was a, a professor at Gordon Conwell for years, but he said this, the best way to describe the way in which we know the canon is the witness of the Holy Spirit given corporately to God's people and made manifest by a nearby nearby unanimous acceptance of the New Testament canon in Christian churches. Do you understand what he's saying? The church, with this as her backdrop, With this as her foundation, the prophets and the apostles then recognized the the canonicity of a certain book as it conformed to this. The church didn't create the canon. She received the canon and the books within themselves, based on the content found within them, 
were self-authenticating because of the content and because of the the um, the message, the overall message that it had. Now, there were three rules. I never know how to do this. Three rules of canonicity. Uh, see why. Okay, three rules. Number one, apostolicity. Was the book written by an apostle? That was a big deal because of this whole sense of um, um, the, this regular fide already in place. If the book was had an apostolic origin to it, that was a book that was at least considered. Um, I was trying to think of one. I, 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 let me, do you know, guys, in your Bibles, um, you have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Do you know that there's a 3 Corinthians? Is the third letter written to the Corinthian church? But it is not even, it's not even preserved. But there is a third letter that's alluded to in the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, but it did not make it into the canon. Was Paul an apostle? Darn tootin' he was. But just because it was apostolic in its origin didn't mean that it was included in the canon. The second, um, the second, and this is so interesting, the second rule of canonicity was reception. I'm just going to put reception. Reception on the part of the original churches. Those early churches that were planted in Philippi and Ephesus and, and, and Antioch and, and um, Jerusalem. Were these books received by the, the, the early church, the, these original churches, who were in possession of that? And then the, um, the, the final rule was it's, uh, it's just a long sentence. I can't write all that out. The consistency that the, that the book had with this undisputed core of, of uh, apostolic truth was what was written consistent with that. And it was the church, the corporate church, that recognized or received the, the, um, the books into the canon. Now, so guys, um, far from Rome making a decision and making her um, the primary source of authority, it was the it was the principle of regula fide, observed and operating within the church, that led to the to the uh, receiving of books written by. Peter, Paul, James, and John. Those are the rules of canonicity, ladies and gentlemen. Not papal decree or papal bull. Um, so, there's, there's a sense in which, ladies and gentlemen, that the... the um, well, the best word is self-authenticating. Based on the, the contents of the book, that was the thing that gave rise to its own approval because it was, in, it was, it was consistent with everything the church had been taught 
in this summary of apostolic teaching. Okay? That's the, um, oh gosh. That's the first objection, uh, to Sola Scriptura. The second, let me just do this quickly. I got five minutes. Um, the second objection has to do with, um, leveled against us, and, and rightly so, that we of Protestants are unable to come to any agreement on what Scripture teaches. And the fact that Protestants disagree so widely is used by the Roman Catholic Church to, to show and prove the superiority of the Roman Catholic system. In Protestantism, there is, there is no mechanism for the resolution of differences theologically that we have. Um, and so Rome says this system is so much better because we do have a mechanism in place to settle all the differences, and it has to do with the Roman the, uh, magisterium. The result, Rome says, among us is theological chaos. There are no real theological objective boundaries within Protestant Christianity. And it's a good charge. What has happened, ladies and gentlemen, is that the Christian church, particularly in the, of late, particularly in the last 75 years, the, the, the Christian church has turned sola scriptura into solo scriptura. I mentioned that once, once before. It is a distortion of a Protestant principle of the right of private interpretation. But ladies and gentlemen, um, what, what we have in the 21st century evangelical church has its roots in relativism, in rationalism, and in democratic populism. It, prov- it promotes a view that makes the individual interpreter infallible. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a crying shame. Sola Scriptura has nothing to do with me alone. It has to do with Scripture alone, not me alone. And, and very honestly, when this is operating in the evangelical church, it results in utter autonomy. That is, every individual believer has his own rights to interpret things in the way that I see fit. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that that is a gross distortion of what Protestantism has always stood for. I'll give you one example, that's all i got time for. Um, Acts chapter 15, there was a great debate as to whether the, the, the new Christian church should have to uh, undergo circumcision and follow the laws of Moses. How was that settled? <laughs> By a, a one individual going in his I've got my views and you have your views and we can all have your views. Everybody gets their own views because, you know, we have the right of private interpretation. No, ladies and gentlemen, there was a council called. It is described for you in Acts 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. All the elders from all of the churches from all over met in this place called Jerusalem, and they decided, the church, corporate, got together and decided what the Bible meant and said. There are theological boundaries. And if you go beyond them, you go beyond them to your own peril. In my opinion, only one time have those boundaries been transgressed appropriately. And his name was Martin Luther. 
And you and I don't have that same kind of calling to redeem the church. So, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible calls us to obey your leaders, Hebrews 13, obey your leaders. And so, for, for us to insist on this individualistic, democratized, relativistic view of my rights to determine the Bible is a very dangerous it's an ungodly insistence on the part of us as, as, as 21st century believers. So all I'm saying, guys, is um, what the Roman Catholic Church is attacking is not sola scriptura. They're attacking, uh, in print, they're attacking this. But in reality, they are attacking this, and I don't blame them. I'll attack it too. That is theological chaos. And um, when you get a... a Something that's um, what's the, what's the what's the marketing ploy um, new and improved? Watch out, because what you've probably got a hold of is rank heresy. It is the church that keeps you within boundaries. She is the pillar, and she is the support of truth. She is supposed to be in the condition that she can help you understand the church is not infallible, as is illustrated by Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation. But she has far more authoritative base than does an individual interpreter coming up with his own ideas as to what things should mean. Be careful. Be very careful. That's all we got time for tonight, guys. I hope it's um, helpful. Our Father, um, we love your word, and we are we are so grateful that you have gone to the extremes that you've gone to to put it into our possession. That what we have in our in our hands is the very mind of God as black words on a white page. And so, to that we yield. To that we submit. Guard us from um, the savage wolves who will seek to distort and to undermine it and to, um, to teach falsehood so that our souls are imperiled. Might we, um, might we have the joy of knowing God through his inerrant word. We commit ourselves to that, Father, and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.